Commander 2013 and our preview of Eternal Weekend on episode 30 of So Many Insane Plays. Welcome to episode 30 of So Many Insane Plays, in which Steve and I review the new Commander product and prepare for November 1st with our Eternal Weekend preview. I'm Kevin Crone with Stephen Menendian. Hi, folks. If you have any comments or questions, you can tweet us at many insane plays, email us at so many insane plays podcast at gmail.com, or leave us feedback on Eternal Central, MTG Cast, or themanadrain.com. Steve, what announcements do you have for our audience this week? Just one announcement. Um, people are interested. They can find all ten chapters of my History of Vintage series that have been published so far, 1993 to 2002, compiled into a single download. Um, the first ten years of Vintage, it's basically the entire history of Type 1, from the creation of the Game of Magic to sort of the big changes that were occurring in the format in 2002. All in one, one book, it's um, about 20% off the price of the individual chapters in 1999, and it's almost 250 pages of really fascinating and forgotten history. Whoa, So 250 pages? <laughs> That's intense. Well, each, yeah, each chapter is, you know, on average about 25 pages plus, you know, five to six pages of endnotes. So I really would like people to explore those footnotes and those endnotes and, and look at the, you know, I've got a lot of anecdotes in them as well as, you know, links to websites and, and uh, books. And I've done a lot of interviews um, and I've just uncovered things that have been long forgotten. It's, you know, treasure trove of information. Cool. So, Kevin, we have a really big announcement that actually was just announced tonight as we've been recording from Wizards of the Coast on the future of Vintage in Magic and Magic Online. Awesome. They have just announced that when they're going to release Power 9 on Magic Online. Why don't you share it with us? In an article from Mike Turian, he confirmed the Vintage Masters set coming to Magic Online in June of 2014. Now, keen-eyed or eared listeners will note that that is fully six months after when they had originally hinted they were going to release the power into the system this year. And Mike does address that near the end of his article. But the Vintage Masters set is going to be a lot like Modern Masters, with a focus on vintage and rounding out the cards that are not currently available for the format online. And the key among that are similar set size, similar price, 15 card packs, 6 dollars each pack, 10 commons, 3 uncommons, 1 rare or mythic, 1 premium foil card, any rarity, or Power 9 card. Right. So we don't really know how rare or not the Power 9 is going to be here, but we know that there's a slot for it, apparently, right? So it's going to be in the premium foil slot. Which suggests it will be more common than it would if it appeared as a regular rare or mythic. Yeah. We can't be certain of the distribution ratios, how often a Power 9 card will appear in place of a foil. But this, to me, suggests that they're trying to get more copies into production than a normal rare would have allowed. It looks like this is modeled in many ways after the Modern Masters. 
Definitely. Series. And it's the timing. Mike Turian explains that they the reason they didn't get it done this year is because they needed more time to do it right. And and to develop the set, I, I expect probably takes time to make sure it's fun and limited. But, um, you know, I'm kind of glad they're taking their time to do it right because that just means there'll be more interest in acquiring these cards for vintage play. But there are a lot of structural things they have to get fixed first. I mean, Legacy is far too anemic on Magic Online. And so that's that's not good for vintage. But but this is this is great. And assuming players open this set with zeal, there's a very good chance that the Power 9 will not be the most expensive cards in the vintage format on Magic Online. That will probably remain reserved for things like Force of Will, Lion's Eye Diamond, and the Dual Lands. Well, what do you think uh, about the possibility that they'll reprint some of those cards in this set? Well, I certainly hope so. I mean, they don't have a vested interest in keeping the price of any one card very high on Magic Online. It's in their interest to have an ongoing cycle to address cards that are creeping up because they know that that will directly translate into demand for whatever pack-based product they come out with. Right. So I they think also, there's a very good chance that there will be a Lion's Eye Diamond or a Force of Will or Dual Lands or or all of the above in this product. Here's something weird, though. This is a weird oddity I just observed, I just noticed. It says the, the pre-release events for Vintage Masters will begin June 13th, but Vintage will be introduced on June 11th. So there will be two days where Vintage is legal, but there will be no Power 9 available. <laughs> No, that'll be the period of time where they just rename Classic to Vintage <laughs> on Magic Online for two days. And then it'll start to trickle out. That's it, also, it also looks like the Power 9 images, at least from what they've got conveyed here, will be the ones that were on the Holiday Cube. That's right. So the Mox Jet art I own, um, etc., although that's the art that will be used here, um, which is pretty sweet for me. <laughs> not not bad. And the more recent versions of Time Twister, Time Walk, and Black Lotus, of course. Yeah, you know, it also, it also says that they were going to introduce fresh artwork for several other classic cards you'll find in the set as well. Naturally, so, naturally. That's exciting. That's cool. I, the thing that, not, not only introducing the power, which is, we've been anticipating this for quite a while, but the notion that they really are modeling this set after the success and possibly the design of Modern Masters is actually pretty exciting. I'm not a Magic Online player at the moment, but I did draft Modern Masters a handful of times, and it's pretty, I think, widely accepted that that draft format was a huge success. And that set as a draft format just alone was awesome. Not only was it a good way to introduce a lot of high-value cards back into the market, so I think it's going to be awesome not only to draft this set, possibly open a Black Lotus, but also just play with another yes. really fun and well-designed and possibly very intricately designed set, a la Modern Masters. This is great. This whole thing is great. It's too bad that the announcement puts it out for another eight or nine months from now, but can't win them all. Yeah, and we it's not like the, the format is, you know, we have a kind of glacial pace. So yep. it'll be here before we know it. I mean, what's that, only three podcasts from now, Kevin? <laughs> <laughs> Don't give our listening audience any bad ideas, Steve. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Although I would also say that I appreciate them announcing this this far in advance, too. Announcing it now is far preferable to waiting until December 31st yeah. to say it. No. And it, it also it's... eliminates any question marks that would be going around at Eternal Weekend. Yeah, this is great news. This is amazing. So that's our big announcement. We don't have any tournaments to preview this week, but that has basically everything to do with our proximity to the Eternal Weekend. We'll get back on the tournament announcement train for the next show, of course. Steve, I think we can move on to Commander. I'm excited. What do we got? 
It's no secret that the last Commander product was a lot of fun for us to review and for certain cards to become powerhouses and vintage. Scavenging Ooze, Fluster Storm, etc. This Commander product does have some candidates, I think, though I have to be honest, I don't see a Fluster Storm in here per se, but we do have a lot of candidates and interesting things to review. We'll start as we start all of our set reviews, though, talking about the themes, the mechanics, the overarching features of the set. This one definitely appears to be pushing more toward the features of the multiplayer commander environment than even the last product did, and developing some mechanics that basically can only exist in commander. Like the command tower before, that was a pretty simple example. That doesn't work in any other format other than a commander. Remind our listeners what command tower did. Well, the command tower is it's a very simple concept. It's a land that taps for any color of mana that is in your commander's uh, color identity. And the color identity is a term of art in commander, which refers to the commander's colors and its casting cost and in its text box. So if you've got an Esper general in your command zone, your commander, your command tower taps for blue, white, or black. Very omni-useful card. They printed it at common. It goes in nearly every commander deck these days, and it was just a great, simple card. But it only functions when you're playing commander. Because an eternal, eternal players do not control any commanders. Yep, you cannot use a commander in eternal formats. But, but to clarify a point, the command zone exists in eternal. It does. It does, and it, it is a very limited use. You can put emblems in there. And that's pretty much it. You can't put emblems there, or emblems automatically. <laughs> yeah. What I meant is you can you can put emblems, and they go in the command zone. Yeah, they go in there by definition. But there's pretty much no other interaction with that zone. There's there's no way there's no way to insert a commander into the command zone in Eternal. No, that is correct. So when you look at certain cards, like there are select few cards in this product that activate specifically from the command zone. For example. Oloro Ageless Ascetic is an Esper General, and ignoring other text in Oloro's text box, it says at the beginning of your upkeep, if Oloro Ageless Ascetic is in the command zone, you gain two life. That's an ability that you would never be able to trigger in Eternal Magic, at least as it stands today. And there's a handful of cards that that have abilities that function only in the command zone like that in this product. So they're definitely ratcheting up that interaction. But there's also another pseudo-cycle of generals that feed off of one of the other mechanics of the format, which is casting your general repeatedly from the command zone. So taking, for example, Yaleva Nephalia's Scourge, who is a Grixis general, ignoring, again, other text, it says, When Yaleva Nephalia's Scourge enters the battlefield, each player exiles the top X cards of his or her library, where X is the amount of mana spent to cast Yaleva. Now that plays off of the recasting of your general in the format, but that is an ability that has some relevance in Eternal Magic because... What do you mean by plays off? I mean, the fact is is that the amount you pay for your general upon subsequent castings increases in Commander, thereby increasing the power of this effect. In Eternal, however, the notion of paying more or getting an increased effect for how much mana you've spent on a card is actually relevant because we play with many cost-increasing effects in Vintage. And so if you were to play Yaleva with a Sphere of Resistance out, you would have to pay five mana for her, and you would get the increased effect of having paid five mana. So X X would be equal to five. Yes, it would. And so while I don't think there's any great cards with this 
mechanic in them in this particular product. It is one of those mechanics that's designed for Commander, but actually relevant in other formats. From a design perspective, I thought there were a couple cards that were interesting. Aren't necessarily playable, but but I think were novel or innovative. For one, there's a creature that whenever he blocks, he exchanges his power with the power of target creature. It's blocking until end of combat. That was a really an interesting design. So one thing I've talked about in terms of design is creating sort of like triggers that have, you know, um, are conditions that create sort of unusual effects. And I think this is a one that I've not seen before. I don't think there's a card that, that does anything quite like that. There was another card that I thought was cool that had a, a kind of interesting trigger called Widespread Panic. And there it's a, it's a shuffle trigger, and there have been shuffle triggers before. But this one says whenever a spell or ability causes its controller to shuffle his or her library, that player puts a card from his or her hand on top of his or her library. Um, that would be obviously really annoying in, in Vintage or Legacy. Um, but I don't think we've seen an effect quite like that. We've seen things maybe when you shuffle and you take damage, but not putting cards. I mean, the idea of putting cards from his or her, your, his, your hand onto your library is a strong theme of this set. And I really like how they played that in a number of different ways, number of different angles. So you've got these X cards that, that put cards into your library, um, X spells that put cards into your library, like a certain number of cards down, a la long-term plans, which mm-hmm. I think was the first card to sort of open up that design space. Yep. But they really played nicely with it in the set with a couple of examples. Yeah, and the widespread panic plays a lot like Psychogenic Probe, which was a two-mana artifact from Mirrodin that does two damage in this trigger condition. Right. But putting cards from hand on top of the library definitely mixes that with, as you said, one of the theme uh, of this set. And this one, I think, like you said, it would be pretty annoying in Vintage Ender Legacy, but yeah. I don't think it's justifiable yeah. to play it. I mean, you you could empty someone's hand pretty quickly. If, this, if it didn't cost three <laughs> mana. It also has my favorite flavor text in this set for sure, possibly in Magic in a long time. That's a pretty good one. Is that <laughs> is that just a manufactured quote? Or is it actually a reference to something? I don't know. I I it, I don't recognize it, but it it is pretty good. I like that. Pretty sweet. How thin this veneer of civilization. <laughs> Shall we move on to some more playable cards? Let's start with a very exciting one. True name nemesis. Oh boy. One blue blue creature merfolk rogue. As true name nemesis enters the battlefield, choose a player. True name nemesis has protection from the chosen player. Three one. Now, you want to talk about creative mechanics. This is in a long line of things getting protection from crazy things, a la Progenitus. This one has some very, very helpful reminder text, though. Mm-hmm. This creature can't be blocked, targeted, dealt damage, or enchanted by anything controlled by that player. Can, can, can I just ask, have there been cards that have protection from a, from a player before? No. So this is the first card ever to have protection from a player. Yep, that's right. This is completely novel in that respect. Yep, and the reminder text is quite important because <laughs> without it, it wouldn't make much sense. The normal definition of protection, for example, includes not being able to be blocked by creatures of that color. Well, a player doesn't have a color, right? And players don't right. block creatures. Creatures block creatures. So the the reminder text is actually quite functional, even more functional than some cases and other abilities where it says yeah. anything controlled by that player. Yeah, it's not really reminder text. It's sort of rules text. <laughs> it de- it's definitely borders on rules text because... Players don't do many of the things that protection interacts with at all. Yeah. But now that we've got that that 
bit of clarity there. Yeah, that card is completely unique. Nothing has given protection from players before. Well, I I love the, the I love it when we see completely new designs in the in the game, and I and so I and I appreciate this. I think this card is going to cause a lot of confusion. Mm-hmm. Just for example, this card can be countered by counter magic because because you don't actually get protection from a chosen player until it hits the battlefield. And so while it can't be targeted once it's in play, it can be targeted on the stack. A very good point. Its ability operates only once it's on the battlefield, so it is not uncounterable, although I would caveat that by saying that in Vintage and Likely Legacy, this card being cast off of Cavern of Souls will probably be a high correlation. But that notwithstanding, you're completely correct. Also, all the traditional stuff that can deal with creatures with protection still applies. Wrath of God type effects, untargeted abilities that add minus one, minus one counters, that kind of thing. And just for it to be you know, abundantly clear here, this can't be targeted by a Planeswalker controlled by a player, even though Planeswalkers count as other players, right? <laughs> well, not literally other players, but from a flavor standpoint, you're right. A planeswalker is still something controlled by the chosen player, so you are correct. Are there things, so I guess there are a number of ways to approach these things, but first of all, are there things that aren't controlled by a player? And what is exactly meant by control? So, I mean, if you create sort of a random effect, that is, the, the effect is initiated by a player, is it considered under the rules to be controlled by that player? Well, abilities are controlled by the player that controls the card that created them. So you cast a spell, and anything that that spell does is controlled by you. You have a permanent, and anything that that permanent does, like abilities it puts on the stack, are controlled by you. Yeah. So what if there's like a, a, a goblin game type card or something, you know, where like both players have to continue to, to do things, and the effect is, is sort of random depending on how that plays out, like flipping or something, is that considered controlled? Well... It is, but keep in mind the simple definition of, of, of sorry, of protection. It's it pre- it prevents blocking, damaging, enchanting, or targeting. Right, but anything controlled by that player. So I'm wondering if that even. Would be yeah, but protection only interacts with blocking, damaging, enchanting, or targeting. Okay. If something is not trying to do one of those four things, protection doesn't stop it. So what are examples? Well, Goblin Game, like you said, or or Warp World, or Wrath of God. Things that don't target or damage, or block or enchant. Or balance, diabolic eating. Yeah, balance, yep, that's right. So if you're not targeting this creature or trying to damage it or enchant it, whatever you're trying to do outside of those things does still work. So what's the black uh, planeswalker that... In Diabolic Edict, uh, Liliana, yes. Liliana of the Veil yeah. will still remove this if it's their only creature at the time the ability resolves. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So it is not without answers in Eternal Magic by a long shot, but it is still pretty darn good at doing what it does, which is creature combat. It's a very good blocker because it has protection from whatever creatures your opponent are attacking you with. And it is unblockable, since that's one of the definitions of protection. And very difficult yeah. to remove with the currently very popular targeted removal in Vintage, like Abrupt Decay, Lightning Bolt, Swords, that kind of thing. Jace. This card is pretty darn good at removing Jace the Mind Sculptor, too. Let's look at our traditional analysis for cards. Uh, mana Cost, Blue Blue 1. There aren't a lot of those, but there are certainly some. Vendillion Click is the standout. Yep, definitely. In fact, Vendillion Click is a very good comparison to this card, but we can get to that. And a 3-1 Blue Creature... It's definitely playable. Again, Vendillion Click. It's a Merfolk and a Rogue, which is two creature types that are benefit from 
Tavern of Souls, which is an increasing play in the format. Exactly. And as we'll get to later on in our Eternal Weekend metagame, metagame prep, Merfolk is a deck that has made top eight recently. And that deck plays things like Marrow Regery, which are functionally the same statistics mm. as this card in terms of castability. So I would expect that a deck like that would look seriously at this card. I would imagine that many players would conclude that they'd rather have True Name Nemesis than Marrow Regery. So this card, in a sense, is an inexorable clock. I mean, granted, there are answers, but those answers are are much few, much fewer and further between than the typical standard answers. To so, what it really poses is sort of like, you know, this card is the unstoppable win condition. Can you win before it kills you? <laughs> and just if this is played on turn three, that means you'll die by turn eleven. So that's about how long the longest t- vintage games actually go any, in any case. So I don't think this really is a, I don't think this card by itself is really a, a, a fast threat in the format, but it may be tactically useful for reasons that you just alluded to. If you're playing a Merfolk deck, for example, one of the things you would have to watch out for post-sideboard is mass removal. Something like Pyroclasm, Pyroclasm sure, engineered explosives, balance perhaps in some strange cases this this does not die to pyroclasm it doesn't die to pyroclasm and it also oh it does die to engineered explosives still though interesting there's just there's just not a lot of removal in the format these days that counts as mass removal that is impacted by protection pyroclasm is a good example but there's not much other than that yeah but i think tactically speaking it's like you said it's good against jace and that's something that's important the other thing is it can block it can serve on defense all day long against any sized creature just about to be clear is poison distributed through damage yes it is creatures with infect deal damage in the form of minus one minus one counters so protection will stop those counters from showing up okay because you don't receive the damage okay so if this blocks a blightsteel colossus it's going to soak up all one of the Blightsteel's damage, and the Blightsteel will trample over for 10 poison still, but this will live through it. Any idea why they gave it one toughness? <laughs> I don't know. I really don't. It's a very funny question, actually, because toughness on creatures with this much protection is kind of silly. <laughs> However, in a product such as this designed for multiplayer, it's actually more relevant than it might otherwise be. Yep. Keep in mind that in a big... EDH group game. This is this protects protection from exactly one other player and not the rest. But and one reason I ask is because if there's an effect that you play that deals damage to your creatures, it will suffer it. Definitely. If you have your own pestilence or pyrohemia in play, for example, this card will die with all the rest. Steve, you made a good point about this card playing good defense, but I'm of the opinion that the sort of decks that this card goes in, a creature like. Marrow Regery, for example, would actually play defense better. Yeah. I mean, it's going to, it's, you'd want the increased toughness if you're ever in that position. The only counterexample I can think of is some creature like, say, Worm Coil Engine that is so much bigger than your creatures that you just want to block it indefinitely. But there are very few creatures that meet that definition in modern vintage. Yeah. Well, I think, I think what's interesting is that these cards, you know, defense and yeah. offense are terms that we use, but they, they bleed. 
Sure. <laughs> the distinction between them is, is, I think, can be very subtle at times. This card can play both roles simultaneously. It can defend as soon as it hits the table, and then it can go immediately into offense and slip back into defense if needed. Like Tarmogoyf in that regard. Yeah, exactly. The turn exactly. you play it, you can't get through them, and then as soon as they go on offense, you can't stop it either. Yeah, so it buys time. It's a tempo generator. I mean, this this card is a really, really fascinating card. I'm interested to see what happens with it. But I think, well, <laughs> you know, I, I don't want to sort of reduce it to a defensive play. I think it serves a, a, a simultaneously at least three or four roles. It's an anti-Jace tactic. It's a defensive card against the kinds of monsters you just mentioned that workshops might un, might sort of lay mm-hmm. out there. And nicely, it can't be hit by like a trike or anything like that. Um, and then it can quickly... You know, go on offense like a regery. Um, and then when it does, you know, it can be a, a very nice finisher. If you can clog the board with a bunch of things, this this guy can finish the game off. It's worth noting that you can copy this permanent with Phyrexian Metamorph. You cannot remove it with Duplicate mm. or Trike, as you said, but your workshop playing opponent could turn the tables on you and get a copy of it. Mm. I think... I think your assessment's right on. I just believe that there are, the range of decks that this goes in is very, very narrow, and and probably most of those decks that are common today at a similar converted mana cost and a similar role already have a better creature. Noble Fish, for example, has your Cold-Eyed Selkie, and it's really pretty tight as to whether or not I'd want Selkie versus this. Because while this will hit harder, and with some Exalted, this thing hitting for 4 or 5 unblockably plays a similar role to the Selkie, but it yeah. you're then eschewing the card drawing that the Selkie provides, which is, I think, very valuable to that archetype. I think the, the most um, relevant question is, would you, would you ever play this card over a Vendillion click in a non-Murfolk deck? Yeah, and that's what I was going to next, and I think the answer is no. You play Vendillion click for its flash, its flying, and its information slash disruptive capabilities yeah. and this does none of those things yeah this card is yeah. approximately as good at killing jace as a click is give or take yeah. but for all those other values no i would never replace click in a blue angels or maybe a grixis or a bug fish deck no i don't think so yeah and and click also gets value for being able to be used with the the restoration angel yeah um as well this doesn't have that yeah. That CIP ability. Uh, I think. I think though. You know. Again, this is an exorable, inexorable uh, clock. But there aren't many. I mean, uh, even though Vintage has more sort of hard control decks, slow control decks, grindy control decks than it's had in a long time. I wouldn't say that those grindy control decks are weak to this card. And I also wouldn't say that those grindy control decks are. St- so slow that they can't raise this card. Yeah, so agreed. Uh, we'll start with Landstill. As you point out, Landstill can deal with this card with explosives just fine. It runs like three explosives. The other thing is that um, even like a mono blue control deck from 2002 could kill this with kegs. Mm-hmm. I think I think you know this kind of design has a lot of promise in the format, um, but I I don't think this card is really ripe for type for vintage play. Maybe Legacy, but I don't yep. think so. I'm with you. And I think it's important to point out something you said a minute ago about certain decks being unable to deal with this. I think Grixis Control is a good example. I think there are several Grixis lists that would never remove this creature. And and then, yeah, and they would still manage to win most games where this creature came down on turn three. Right. I do think, though, that the format is, the format is right now, I think, to some degree susceptible to cards of this ilk, meaning aggressive, tempo-oriented creatures. Um, like I think Vendillion Click is fantastic right now, but I, I just don't, I don't think you would play this over Click, especially given the new legend rule. Good point. I think you're right. 
Shall we do our predictions? I'm going to go first, and I predict that this card will see at least one top eight because Merfolk is occasionally played and and preys on some of the weaknesses of the format. So I'm going to go with one. <laughs> well, I think that people will want to play this for its novelty. Um, I, I agree that the Merfolk decks do make top eight. I'm not sure what they would replace to make room for this. Um, if if um, someone like Joel, who played, who has made those top eight appearances with Merfolk, elects to play this, that would suggest to me that there's probably going to be more than one top eight with this. Um, so, but but I'm 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 a skeptic. <laughs> Um, I'm going to say, I'm going to, I'll just say zero. Okay. Fair enough. There is room for this card to be played and not yet good enough to make top eights. So I think that's a reasonable assessment either way. Let's move on to unexpectedly absent. I really love the flavor of this card. It is X white, white instant put target non land permanent into its owner's library, just beneath the top X cards of that library. Steve, this is like the opposite of long-term plans, as you observed earlier. I think it's I think it's hilarious. So this card, it it just white white just puts the card on top of the, your opponent's library. Yep, that's true. If X is zero, it puts it beneath the top zero cards of their library. <laughs> that makes it the most e- efficient desert twister of all time. <laughs> it is awfully flexible. It is just target non-land permanent, which in vintage is a very valuable set of targeting conditions. We're talking Blightsteel Colossus, Jace, Jace. Mind Sculptor, yeah. Time Vault, uh, Crucible of Worlds, Lodestone Golem, Tarmogoyf. The list yeah. goes on and on. You're going to get a lot of value by having that flexibility. It's really incredible, the, the, the range of cards this hits I mean, for, for such an efficient mana cost. And if you happen to have more mana at your disposal, it gets better and better. Let's all... Let's also not forget that due to the omnipresence of shuffle effects in this format, there are, will be many cases where at X equals zero, this becomes straight up removal thanks to a fetch land. That's, that's exactly what I was going to ask you. I mean, and tutors. Your opponent goes demonic tutor and you respond with this. Yes. Um, it's gone. And you put Jace on top of their library? Yes, it's fantastic. It, but I'm, what I'm curious about is how often do you think you'd pay more than white, white for this? I mean, it, it, you, what's the real marginal difference between white, white one and white, white or white, white two and white, white one, right? I mean, it's pretty marginal. It, it, boy, the answer to that I think is more, a little more complex than you're giving it credit for. It, it depends on how much mana you probably have available in your opponent's heads up. <laughs> I think that. The first time you play an unexpectedly absent in a given game, it's going to be for zero probably in a lot of cases. Yeah. But the second time you draw one, absolutely. I'm going to pay white, white one or white, white two occasionally. And also I think it has a lot to do with the decks you put it in. I think a strong candidate for decks that would feature this card is Noble Hierarch. I think there'd be a strong overlap between Noble Hierarch and the use of this card. And I think it's not unreasonable to think you'd have a curve of Noble Hierarch on one, a creature plus a disruption maybe on two, and then on three, you might find yourself with access to four mana. And your best play is to put their Jace two cards deep in their library. I think that that's not unreasonable. I think it's a pretty typical use for this card would be casting it for three or yeah. four mana. A lot of times, though, you don't want to draw the card. <laughs> you know, it's, it's actually worse to have it on top than to put it deeper. It's worse for your opponent. Oh, sure. And th- and that's fine. If you if winning the game, I mean, sorry, if putting said card next in their library means you're just going to win the game because it's not going to help them next turn, yeah. then sure, by all means. Yeah. And I think that you're right. Paying it for zero I'm, will be, I don't want to say the default, but 
probably the majority. The plurality, at least. Yeah, the plurality, at least. And and even at that mana cost, it's still super efficient, very effective, very useful. And also, the fact that you're putting it on top and giving it back to them, some people might say, well, that's just like a tempo loss. It's You're just buying some time. Anyone who suffered submerge in the format knows how devastating it can be to have to draw a card that you don't want to draw. Yeah, thank you for bringing up the submerge comparison, because that card has definitely earned its keep in Legacy. And that effect is very valuable here. Imagine if you could submerge Jace the Mind Sculptor in Legacy. I mean, <laughs> or if you could submerge, say, Omniscience. <laughs> I mean, it's yeah, incredible. Every time when people play fetch, activate fetchlands in Legacy, they're gonna have to be more careful if their if their opponent has white white open. <laughs> Vintage, pl- I'm sorry, Legacy players are already pretty darn careful about their le- their fetchland activations. And for good reason, and vintage players are as well, but you're right, this is, boy. And it will be interesting to see, too, especially when this card is fresh and new, what players will be caught off guard by it. Imagine, for example, imagine you're playing against Noblefish, and they go turn one Noble Hierarch off of a tropical island, for example. And then the next turn, they play a fetch land, like a flooded strand, and pass. Now, they don't even have a land that produces white on the table, and yet you right. could have played your bob on turn one, and on turn two you go to activate a fetch land, and they fetch in response and get their white white and just unexpectedly absent your bob out of nowhere. So I think some players are going to be caught really off guard by this card early on. Yeah, and I, I think, though, what I'm trying to emphasize is the, the real um, the harm. <laughs> Let me repeat that. What, I, what I'm trying to draw out of this, though, is I think that there is a real benefit to, in disruptive effect, of putting a card on top of your opponent's library that they don't want to draw. For example, I'll give you a good example. The Delver of Secrets, right? Mm-hmm. Like, that card that they flipped has just become worthless on turn three or later. If, they have, if they're forced to draw it, it's actually, like, worse than drawing... You know, it's like the worst thing they could draw. Oh, I see what you're saying. You're saying that this is not just dealing with a permanent, but perhaps dealing with the permanent, but also guaranteeing they don't draw a card that they need on a, on a, on a key turn. Exactly. What I'm saying is putting something on top of their library can be more disruptive or equally disruptive is actually removing I the see. permanent. Yeah, there are plenty of cards in Vintage that are very niche functionality. I think a perfect example is Time Vault slash Voltaic Key. If yeah. your opponent has one of those two and is not assembled to combo yet, then putting that permanent on top of their library makes it a dead draw. And it may be in some cases that it's not the value of removing the voltaic key, but the value of assuring that they're not drawing a useful card next turn. It's a cliched and overused term, but it's a, te- it's a time walk. It's a tempo yeah. play. Yeah, I see your point exactly. This card has a lot of value in that it can both remove permanence and create tempo and do both at the same time. On top of its on top of its really impressive versatility. <laughs> Steve, we've got to move into the phase where we talk about what decks this goes in. I've already used Noble Fish as an example. It seems like a pretty obvious point. This is a very aggressive card. What decks play white in the format? The decks that play white in the format are basically white land still. Yep. Uh, Bomberman. Bomber Bomberman. Blue Angels. Esper Control, like Stoneblade. Yeah, Esper Control. And any of those RIP decks, right? I'm so sorry, what's... Rest in oh, Rest in Peace, rest in peace yes. decks, both the control yes. versions and the um, and the, the black-white versions and, and other mm-hmm. variants. Um, I think this is going to be hard to play in any of the decks with Cavern of Souls, so I would sort of shy away from those as being natural places, but this would seem like it might be a really good consideration in a Landstill-type deck, right? Well, interesting. Landstill doesn't want to necessarily fetch out white-white early unless it's just a blue-white landstill. That's true. Landstill has a lot of colorless yep. 
So it's not a reliable early game card for Landstill. That having been said, blue-white Landstill has pretty a high degree of flexible options for early answers, so it's not out of the realm of possibility. I would say you're probably going to eschew this kind of targeted removal for just more engineered explosives in that role. Yeah, those are different functions. Yeah. And anyway, you're right, that's a possibility. I don't think a deck like Bomberman is going to go this route, although, boy, now that I say that... You know, this card can actually remove a Leyline of the Void as well. Oh, good point. Pretty, And that's that's another example of a card that I'm talking about. Although the decks that want to do that generally won't have access to white-white. But you are completely correct. That's a good example of that card. Terrible yeah. draw. <laughs> However, I think that this is just more ammunition for white-based aggro decks. Noble Fish, this seems like a natural fit there. Yeah. Any kind of white trash or green or white X aggro deck, it seems like an obvious inclusion there. Yeah. And it's, it's, sorry, yeah. go ahead. No, I think you're right. I think it doesn't. It, your opponent won't gain life from swords, and this card is just as good and creates the tempo. I was just going to say, it feels to me as though Swords to Plowshares is an obvious card to Even replace. Even though Swords is like probably the best white card in the <laughs> You're not wrong about that, but it seems like the extra flexibility you get of being able to target Jace with this card yeah. is huge. And Smokestack is an increasingly resurgent card in workshop decks. Oh, and this card's an instant. Yeah. So good. Oh, man, the effect on Smokestack is awesome. Yeah. Just awesome, because not only that, if you can manage to do it, now, and that's no small if, but on their upkeep, may, you maybe you have to go a turn for this to be really be broken, but even the turn they add the counter, and you get to see how they deploy the rest of their turn, you can then put the stack on top, or, or depending on how they tap down to a tangle wire, you could put their tangle wire back on top right, of their deck. Right, well, what, what you would do is you would, you'd let all their triggers go on the stack, and then you would play this once they've resolved them, right? You could take either route, yeah. If you want to have more information before you choose, you can let them tap down to Tangle Wire, or you can put the wire on top before they do, thereby depriving them of one of the permanents they might tap. Yeah, all kinds of options there. You could, you could be very disruptive to a prison-style yeah, I really hope this archetype. card is not unexpectedly absent and, and vintage. <laughs> well done. Someone had to go there, right? Yeah. <laughs> All right, I think we've talked this one to death. There is just a lot to be said, but we got to keep going. It's, just, it's super efficient, that's the thing. So um, I guess I'm going first, huh? Mm-hmm. I hate the fact that I think you're going to say zero. Uh, <laughs> uh, you're Mr. Zero. You become Mr. Zero. <laughs> uh, okay, I'm going to predict. I'm going to predict that this will appear in at least two top eight deck lists. I am not Mr. Zero on this card. I think it's actually going to be adopted, even as a one-of in certain lists, replacing something like a plow, like a disenchant, like a Hercules recall, like an echoing truth or a repeal. This is really good in disenchant slots. Yeah. If you have two disenchants in your sideboard, just make one disenchant and one this. I feel as though it's going to be more popular than you've laid it out there. Good. I think that I'm going to go with four. I hope so. This card's sweet. I agree. <laughs> this is pretty cool. And it's also very tactically interesting in that... It creates all kinds of fascinating in-game decision-making about when you do it and for how much and when people crack fetches and what you target. Do you go for a less interesting permanent because they're cracking a fetch or do you wait for that bigger deal? I just Yeah, it's a really skill-intensive card. The the decision-making aspects to it are just enormous. A, the timing, when you play it. B, how much you pay it for. C, what you target with it. I mean, all of those things usually matter, but this brings them all together in one fantastic card. And it interacts very fascinating ways with the various counter magic of the format, like 
Spell Pierce, mm. and Fluster Storm. Very good point. So you can push the envelope and put a card further down if you're willing to take chances against those two counter spells. Yeah, just fascinating stuff. I love it. You and I are both on the same page that we love cards that add skill-intensive decision-making to the gameplay and the deck building. Yeah. All right, we got to move on. we got to move on. Next is a card I love, Toxic Deluge. Two black sorcery. As an additional cost to cast Toxic Deluge, play X life. All creatures get minus X minus X until end of turn. And Steve, without hyperbole, this card actually kills every creature in Vintage. <laughs> Including Blightsteel Colossus. <laughs> yes, not to be underestimated is its ability to kill Blightsteel Colossus. <laughs> And people might, I mean, to the casual observer, that might seem like, whoa, Lightstealer, really? But I will gladly trade you my 11 life and this card for continuing to play Magic. (laughs) 11 life, I'll fork it over right now. (laughs) Uh Now, that having been said, you won't always have the luxury of the 11 life to spend, but that's Uh where the tension for this card comes in. I want to point out that I believe in the abstract, a three-mana card that can reliably kill every creature in the format automatically deserves consideration. Yeah, this is the best Wrath of God ever printed. Yeah, this agreed. This is three mana, Wrath of God, God and the life is, is a resource in this format, something you use up. So this is pretty. This is a pretty incredible card. I, <laughs> I agree completely. I, I, it's The casting cost is clearly playable in Vintage. There are, Yawgmoth's Will is the best example, but there are other cards in a similar mana cost. And the effect, as we've just discussed, is not entirely novel per se. I mean, giving all creatures minus X minus X has been done in a handful of ways. Yeah. But for this amount of mana, the flexibility of it is an unheard of amount of flexibility. Yeah. The, the minus X minus X cards are like Flowstone. Yeah. Or, you know, or uh, what's the card? That, Black uh, Sun Zenith. Yeah, things of that. Massacre. Yeah, exactly. They're not as flexible as this. And vintage decks... There is a there is a hole in the vintage deck building populace right now for this kind of effect. There's simply not very many cards that are played in vintage right now because they can remove all the creatures. Yeah. Almost everything is either a targeted removal, lightning bolt, plow, as we've said a million times, or something that will it can get multiple creatures, but it's very narrow, like ancient grudge, like your engineered explosives, like your pyroclasm. These cards are used for their efficiency. And their narrow applications. Right. This thing is totally different. This is a game changer. This is a card that really, really screws aggro decks in this format. I mean, I'm kind of shocked they printed this. I am a little bit shocked, too. But the more I think about how I would operationalize using this card in a deck, the less shocked I become. Because I think this is not the kind of card that you can cram three or four of them into any old deck. It's it's not. I mean, that function doesn't deserve a whole lot of main deck attention in vintage. Put in a legacy deck, in a legacy deck, or like a, against a, a merfolk deck. This just thing annihilates it. Yeah, agreed. <laughs> I mean, that's why I think you want maybe one in the main and, and extras in the board. This is don't forget. This is also a burning wish target. Oh sure, that's right. You would buy. You would be happy to burning wish for this. Oh, it's I'd be delighted. Of yeah, <laughs> I'll wipe out your entire board. This is the card. This this card is is. I'm telling. This is going in my doomsday legacy doomsday deck for sure Fascinating. this card is i will pay <laughs> it, it makes my doomsday better because my doomsday takes less life anyway but this card <laughs> is just better than perish and it's better than massacre it's the same card so i'll be delighted to pay this and better than virtue's ruin yeah yeah it's just the same thing sure your whatever you've got your delver deck sure i'll pay three <laughs> life wipe your entire board. yeah and that's another thing to keep in mind uh, is that in vintage there will be a lot of scenarios where you don't need to pay a lot of life 
against Rug Delver, for example, yes, there could be a Tarmogoyf involved. But aside from Tarmogoyf, the biggest toughness is probably the three on a Trigon Predator every once in a while. Yeah, what's the most you're going to pay on the Tarmogoyf anyway? You know, five? And less than that in many cases. Yeah. Five. It's definitely worth it. It's. I mean, yeah. And you have to do some simple math to realize that paying the life for almost any creature in Vintage is going to be roughly equivalent to taking one hit from that creature. They also made a mistake. This card slips through Gadok Teague. Because it, which, which is interesting because Gadok mm-hmm. Teague says X in the casting cost, mm-hmm. and this costs under four. So it really hoses Gadok Teague. Wow, that's fascinating. Both from an Eternal standpoint and from a Commander standpoint. Gadok Teague is somewhat popular in Commander. Anyway, there are very few creatures in Vintage that you would not happily trade their toughness in life on a one-time basis to get rid of them. Almost everything in workshops fits that description. You're you're paying a little bit more for something like um, for something like Forge Master, yeah. but it's still entirely worth it to do because if you don't, you're facing a much worse threat. And <laughs> for something like Rug Delver, as you said, it's a pretty good deal. Against something like Pyromancer, it's a bargain. <laughs> One life to get rid of their whole team. Exactly. It's just it really is a, an effective transition from life to removing your opponent's creatures in vintage. Well, you you would much rather pay life in definitely in there for this. And and I mean, <laughs> this card is just perfectly situated. I don't think you could be much more aggressive for this kind of wrath effect. Um, the casting cost and there's no balance type issues with this either. You know, this is something you could burning wish for and this ritual out immediately. In either format, frankly. Um, and, and, it, and it's, again, the versatility. The cards like Massacre, Parish, Virtue's Ruin target very specific creature yep. types. This gets all of them. So, you know, it deals with the disruptive white bears. It deals with the fast red and blue tempo creatures. It deals with, you know, whatever creature type you're concerned about, it, it knocks them out. There may be even times you want to get rid of your own dark confidant. That's a good point. If you are... That's interesting tension there. The times you would want to get rid of your own Dark Confidant is when it's threatening your life total. Well, you could play aggressive Dark Confidants, and then you can wipe them out and in your opponent's entire army at the same time. Yep, true. Let's talk about the kind of decks this goes in. You've already clearly alluded to Burning Wish. It seems like a clear at least one of there. Well, I would really be interested to see if this helps bring about a really controlling Burning Wish deck, because there's always been room for that. This is going to be a, this would be an automatic sideboard inclusion in that kind of deck. Um, Interesting. What was the name of that old control burning wish deck? Shining. The Shining. Yes, you get your you get your one thought seize, your one toxic deluge, your Yogmoth's will, your various anti artifact cards if you need them. Yeah. Seems like there's a place for that in vintage these days. Oh, your anti dredge card. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Pretty flexible. In addition to the flexibility that modern Grixis control already has. What do you think about other decks, though, what do you think about Grixis? Let's talk about that. How does this fit into Grixis' plan? Well, it depends. On, I think the, the trend in Grixis is towards fewer Snapcaster mages. Not that that really would be a big factor here if it's like three versus one Snapcaster mage. I really think, though, this kind of deck is this kind of card is really good in a deck like Keeper, where you have access to a lot of flexible answers, right? But you're looking for those. You're looking for every opportunity to get the two for one, right? So your opponent, you fan open a hand that has maybe a mystical tutor in it, and your opponent plays out one threat, and you have half a dozen ways you could deal with it, with a jace or a plow or a bolt or a toxic deluge, but then they play out a second threat, and maybe they tapped out for a bigger guy on turn three. And all of a sudden, you've got more flexible options than you may have had before. Well, this card is good against every single archetype, just about. I mean, think about what this does against even Dredge. (laughs) 
take and out their entire army of, of I don't think opens. I made that point strong enough earlier on. I that's what that whole in vintage is. There's no card that you can say that about. I mean, yes, you can play, say, Engineered Explosives against Dredge, and you could set it at 2 to get rid of Narcomoeba Bloodgast if you wanted to. You could set it at 1 to stave yourself from dying to the token army for one turn. But this card doesn't have to make that choice. You just play it, and everything they have in, it's, in play it's other than their bizarre it's goes good away. It's good against Dredge. Yep. It's good against Workshops. It's, um, it's efficient enough to be played in Workshops against Workshops. It's on the edge of efficiency for playing against Workshops. If I had this in my 75... I would likely have it post-board against workshops because it's just one more tool. But it's not the sort of thing you're going to put four of in your sideboard for workshops. You're still probably going to need all of the additional answers for them. Yeah, this, you know, I'm really I'm really thinking now. This the cards an enormous versatility. If this wasn't like a two of in a keeper deck, could be very well. Could be if keeper in 2002 had this card, would they play it? Is what I'm thinking right now. Oh yeah, this is like this on steroids. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's pretty darn good. It would have been pretty darn good against those goblin decks, even at the cost of life, but getting a three-for-one out of that deal. Yeah, yeah. you'd like pay one mana and make your Morphling like 2-4, and then you play this for three life and wipe out their entire board. Yeah, that's incredible. <laughs> yeah, it's really hard to evaluate because this this could help create foster decks. I mean, this this just sort of feeds that trend of slowing down vintage. I'm I'm sort of excited to see what happens in Legacy with it as well. This card, it could be a game changer. It's hard to say, but it has the I agree. That potential. I think it hits the format in a lot of different angles. Yeah. And everything is going to either try it or have to adjust to it, I think. I think it's prediction time. And I'm going to go first. Given all the reasons you just said about Burning Wish and possibly creating new decks, in addition to people trying it out just in sideboard slots for maybe creature-heavy metagames, I really think you're going to see a number of appearances from this card. I'm going to go, I'm going to go five. I don't think it's set up to be a staple just yet. Time may prove that it is, but... Yeah, I think this is a long-term card for the format. Um, I, I hate to be on the wrong side of you on this. I think the trend, is, though, is to be a little more conservative, so I'm just going to hedge against you and go four. Oh, I see. Okay. I bet against your spread. <laughs> All right. Fair enough. You're taking the under. I, I, I respect that. I forgot to compare that card to Fire Covenant. Oh, did I? Oh, that's right. I even put it here in the notes. <laughs> Fire Covenant... Now, Fire Covenant has seen a few appearances lately, and obviously it has a lot of the same features of Toxic Deluge. It takes a larger life investment, but to your point earlier about you will gladly trade life for a resource in Vintage and Eternal in general, and Fire Covenant has lack of symmetry in that you can Fire Covenant away your opponent's whole team. But it's also much harder to do in situations like workshops or dredge, perhaps, when they put a lot of toughness on the board. Against workshops, for example, if they put out a Forge Master and a Lodestone, and you get the mana to play either one of these cards, you have to pay five life for Toxic Deluge, and you have to pay eight life to Fire Covenant. Similarly, against dredge, if they have simply a couple of Narcomoebas, a couple of blood gas and a couple of tokens, you have to pay two life with Deluge, and you might have to play six to eight life or more with Fire Covenant. So I think that Deluge overall is more powerful and will probably have a bigger place. Also, easier to cast at only one color of mana. Okay, let's move on to Sidri Galvanic Genius. She is a legendary creature human artificer for white, blue, black. Her two abilities are blue colon, 
target non-creature artifact becomes an artifact creature with power and toughness equal to its converted mana cost until end of turn. And white-black colon target artifact creature gains death touch and lifelink until end of turn. Now, longtime vintage players will note that her first ability is basically Karn, Silver Golem, for blue instead of colorless. And it can function exactly like Karn. It can also function similarly to how Gorilla Shaman does against Moxon. Her second ability, target artifact creature gains death touch and life link until end of turn. Probably a lot less useful in vintage compared to the first. Steve, where do you think the place is for a Esper costed Mox Monkey slash Karn in vintage? Uh, Keeping in mind she is a human artificer. Yeah. No, I wish I'd listened to our uh, our uh, companion podcast on Eternal uh, Central recently, but I just haven't gotten around to, to listening to it yet on humans. <laughs> Um, <laughs> um, I, I, I think Mox Monkey is, is, is the gold standard for that kind of thing. But it is, it is, he's, this card is not out of the realm of playability, but, um, it seems to me quite marginal. It's cast and costs very prohibitive, very constrictive. Yeah, this would be on the short list of blue cards in an existing humans deck. The, the irony is probably that the blue is probably the bad aspect of this year. Yeah, I think you're right. Really hard for me to wrap my head around this kind of card because this card has like functional casting cost of like five in my head. <laughs> and the first ability activating for blue mana is also an additional limitation when you yeah. compare it to existing humans lists. A lot of existing humans lists, now this is just to take what's in play right now, but the way they'd get the blue mana to cast her would be off of a cavern and then you wouldn't be able to subsequently activate this ability off of cavern. And that, in addition to that, this ability for animating an artifact tends to want large artifacts in play. And there's yeah. simply no deck that plays artifacts that cost more than two, thinking Time Vault here, that isn't a yeah. workshop deck. I mean, it, even Time Vault is probably the only non-workshop deck artifact that gets played that costs more than one. And it's frequently tutored out, not even cast. <laughs> So I guess what I'm getting at is there's a lot, there's a severe lack of synergy between paying Esper for a card and then wanting to have a big artifact in play in Vintage. Um, yeah, I think that's a the second. I mean, I think what you're doing is you're sort of breaking down its abilities and individual utility. Mm -hmm. um, you could ignore the first ability completely and focus on the second, whereby target artifact creature gains death touch and lifelink would be. There just aren't there aren't any artifacts. It's, it's, this creature is not really an artificer. Is the problem? Is what you're saying? I mean, it, it is technically, Manip but yeah, manipulates artifacts it, it, in play, but yeah. doesn't help you get there. If yeah. you wanted to activate the second ability, you're wanting to do it on something <laughs> like a. I'm going to give my sensei's divining top death touch and life, <laughs> <laughs> and then I'm going to put it on top of my library. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't work like that, does it? Uh, you no. could make a case for a card like this in a wizard slash humans hybrid that played Revoker and. I'm looking Sturman's <laughs> deck, and he has the capacity to cast this card. It's four Cavern of Souls, three City of Brass, four Verdant Catacombs, and half the dual lands in existence. The five bad, <laughs> <laughs> bad lands: Savannah, Taiga, Bayou, yeah. Scrubland. The scrub, the scrubby ones. Um, <laughs> yeah, not cast, casting this card is not the limitation really in a deck. Yeah, it's not the limitation. It's just the, the that, that's the ironic part, right? Is that yep. the, the abilities on her are just not that useful. Yeah. This this is a big goose egg in my mind. Yeah. I don't think we need to go much further. I I don't think this you could put this into a humans deck and get it onto the stack and get it onto the battlefield, but it's going to be the worst card you have in play by a long shot. Let's move on to a little more fun example, Bane of Progress. 
4GG Creature Elemental. When Bane of Progress enters the battlefield, destroy all artifacts and enchantments. Put a plus one plus one counter on Bane of Progress for each permanent destroyed this way. It's naturally a 2-2. Now, Steve, you went on record as thinking that the six mana red dragon from a few sets ago that stole your opponent's artifacts was going to be good enough. What do you think about a giant elemental that just blows them all up and feeds off of them? <laughs> what was my prediction? For I think that it was dragon? one or two. You th- you thought that people but... might have some in the sideboard of oath decks for workshops, which is probably the place to do that for this card too. Yeah, I think this guy's a lot yeah. better. I think this guy is definitely playable. Um, look, I mean, the value of being able to blow up the entire board and then also get like huge benefit out of this. So, okay, let's be specific, sure. right? Let's say you oath this up and your opponent has, I don't say, four artifacts in play. That's reasonable, it right? Is. You have a mox, a sphere, maybe a tangle wire, and maybe a creature. Mm-hmm. You you blow up for it. This guy then becomes how big? Do you have a mox in play? Yes. Let's say we have a mox in play. So it becomes a seven seven uh, eight eight actually. You got to count your oath. Yes, and he destroys your oath, so it becomes eight eight. That's more than up to win. Yeah. And that's just that's on the conservative side. It really is. So your opponent only having four artifacts is probably below the curve for when this creature would enter the battlefield in a scenario like that. This guy is metamorph proof, interestingly, because because metamorph looks, Kevin, because metamorph is still an artifact. Right. So if you he'll destroy himself. Yep. A metamorph will destroy himself as a copy. And if you get him with duplicate, it will exile him, but the duplicate will only be a two two. So only a two. So it's not like they get to hit you back with either duplicate or metamorph. They don't get to hit you back with the huge guy you created. And this guy has the benefit, unlike Terracidon, of actually being castable by himself. Mm-hmm. If you don't have the oath, you could drain into this. Yep. Yeah, I think that it's. I don't want to compare him too much to the dragon we talked about earlier because that didn't really pan out. But this guy has so much more upside as a kind of a world ender against workshops. Yes, it is possible that they could sandbag a little bit once they know you play this card and they could meter out their their good cards to to somewhat play around it. But even if they do that, even if they have say you blow up their their world and you get a six six to an eight eight guy. Even if they sandbag the duplicate, you still just got so much card advantage against them. And you got into the mid-game on an empty board, which has so many other benefits if you're playing against workshops. It should be noted that you actually do want to destroy your own oath when you play this because you don't want them oathing. Yeah, and that's actually a a fun interaction that I think benefits you. You're right. You could make a case for the fact that, well, you could make an advanced case for scenarios whereby they have the answer to this guy and you wish you still had oath on the table. But honestly, if you made it to the mid-game and you got rid of their board and they sucked an answer into this guy, which probably costs six mana, even if they get to that advanced state where it's turn four or five, you blew up the world, they duplicated your guy, you're facing a gray ogre that costs them six mana, and you're in the mid-game with no sphere effects and no lodestone golem in play. I think that still puts you in a really good position. Yeah, pretty excited. So... I guess the question then is, do you think this is really an obvious ploy in the sideboard for Oath decks? Would you rather do all of that that we just said in a, in a nice scenario, or would you rather still just get Gristlebrand into play? Um, <laughs> I actually think this guy is probably more likely to win the game than Gristlebrand. Um, okay. In, in the problem, I guess it depends on the deck, right? So in in burning tendrils with when you oath, you're going to be hitting a lot of your own artifacts, which is okay because he's gonna he's gonna be he huge. feeds off of that. He could reliably be ten ten or twelve twelve in that scenario. 
Yeah, yeah. But you're going to wipe their entire board, and you're going to be able to do whatever you want. I think this guy is just money. I think it has a lot to do with whether your Oath deck is packing counter magic. If you're playing Force of Will, then putting this guy into play with a, with a single Force of Will in your hand could be enough to just win the game. The yeah. odds of them having two ways to stop this guy from taking over is pretty slim. Yeah, I think the problem two, with this yeah, card... Yeah, two duplicates no, and a handful of cards, I don't know. No, they're yeah. done. Yeah, I, that's, I think the, your chances of winning the game are, are just very high. Um, the problem with this guy, the number one problem, is he doesn't beat Cage. Okay. And typically against workshops with Burning Tendrils, I bring in Laboratory Maniac to beat Cage. Okay. Because you don't actually need to destroy anything. You just need to get the Maniac into play and then just Oath one more time and win the game. So you think for so, a more aggressive Oath-packing deck like Burning Tendrils, you'd rather take that route because it has strategic superiority over Cage and fits into your overall plan. Yeah, I just I, I, that's my concern is that I think this guy is definitely playable in the format. He's a strong, solid option for Oath decks. I just don't know if he's, he's good enough to displace Cage. And in regular Oath decks... Maybe he, they don't play, they don't play, uh, Lab, Laboratory Maniac. Maniac, yeah. Yeah, they don't play Maniac, then he probably, he probably is good as a cyborg card, but I'm not sure if they would, they would play him. They should, but <laughs> <laughs> they will. Well, and so, there have been appearances recently from all manner of the Oath decks we just described. There have been yeah. you know, Burning Tendrils, of course, but there's also been some Swan Song style control oaths in some recent top eights. And yeah. I think your analysis is pretty good. That kind of deck that's more controlling, that's going to bring in maybe some spot removal for the cages, you know, some nature's claim, that kind of thing. But then once Oath activates, they expect to just ride this creature to victory, maybe countering one more spell that matters. I think it's reasonable. I don't think it's for everybody, but I think some people will try it and maybe have some success. Yeah, I I, I think so too. Anyway, so what do you predict? I predict one. I think someone's going to try it and have a little bit of success. I think it's going to appear pretty rarely, even if it's useful, because that kind of deck is is in the second or third tier of the format right now, and I just don't think this is even going to be adopted by everyone who's good with that deck. All right, I'll take the over. You want to go two? Yep. You don't want to ratchet that number up a little more due to your, your high <laughs> degree of confidence? Um, no, I'm, I'm good. All right. I, I mean, you know, I, one, I'd have to do some research to see sort of how many people have played me top eights with oaths over the last, you know, whatever months. And I'd like make some ratio of that, but I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to say, <laughs> well, I can tell you that that number is pretty low and in the, in the data we're going to cover about the Northeast metagame soon, you'll see that it's, it's still pretty low. Okay. All right. Last we have restore. This is a sorcery for one green Put target land card from a graveyard onto the battlefield under your control. This is a fun amalgamation of the regrowth and explore slash rampant growth style card in green. Very flexible, somewhat powerful, and in, in eternal formats you have at your disposal some of the best lands in magic. What do you think, Steve, about the idea of ramping slash reusing slash getting access to one of your opponent's lands? Well, when I read it, I hadn't queued into the fact, keyed into the fact that you can play it on your opponent's lands. That's pretty sweet. Mm -hmm. You can. That's really a control a control magic on lands. <laughs> well, no, that would be conquer, but yeah. but to a degree, <laughs> this would be paired with wasteland in a great many cases. 
Well, the first thing I thought of was uh, that Doomsday combo. Not Doom, sorry. The first thing I thought of was the uh, Dark Depths combo. Oh, yes. Where people intuition for the Dark Depths. Um, it seems like that's a potential way to... But I, I can't see how that would be better than Regrowth. Just, I think with Regrowth Unrestricted, there's no room for this card. I mean, granted, it's not strictly inferior to Regrowth. You can um, you can you can use it on your opponent's land. Also, you can accelerate that combo by a turn if you've got one of the other lands in your hand. In that scenario you just described, if I'm holding Thespian Stage and I intuition for Dark Depths, I can play Thespian Stage and restore the Dark Depths on the same turn. Yeah. Well, maybe maybe that deck that Matt Hazard posted, I'll, we'll post a link in our in our notes mm-hmm. to that deck. He posted a uh, primer on it on the, the Mana Drain. But he has, yeah, four Dark Depths, four Thespian Stage, four Crop Rotation, four Sylvan Scrying, Expedition map, two into the north and four ancient ancient stirring. Yeah, he so he's got, he played that deck he, at the last Team Serious Open. He did not have a good record in that event, but it was a very cool deck list. Yeah, it's it's awesome. I mean, it seems like it would be pretty intuitive in there. And if you have intuition, then it's just money. Um, you can just take whichever card they didn't give you. Um, <laughs> I, I'm also wondering about the the legacy land deck, the 43 land deck. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's it's superior to regrowth in many cases in a deck like that. And putting the land straight back into play has a lot of utility when it comes to something like, say, Glacial Chasm. When you're sacking yeah. your lands, it, it buys back some of the tempo involved in using that card. Yeah, and it's really also much point. better for using any land that comes into play tapped, a Fairy Conclave or the like. Lands is has evolved in the way it plays and the cards it plays over the last several years. It's no longer packing quite so many lands per se, and it has adopted a number of other strategies to go with the lockdown components, like Knights of the Reliquary and Dark Confidants and all kinds of other things. So I think everything is fair game for consideration in a deck like that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so just to be clear, it's the advantages it has over regrowth is it can hit your opponent's lands, and it also doesn't count as your land drop because it goes directly into play, and then obviates a lot of those CIP effects, mm-hmm. or as not CIP, but as they would come into play. Yeah, agreed. So. Do you think that this has any place really in the average, say, aggro control deck that has mana disruption as one of its tenants? Yeah, so you could use two the way, the same wasteland twice in a turn is what you're suggesting. Effectively turning this card into just sinkhole for green. Yeah. <laughs> and a narrow sinkhole at that because it necessitates having the wasteland. If you draw this without it, it you can't use it as a sinkhole. You could use your opponent's fetch land. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And against workshops, you could use their wasteland, which would happen uh, occasionally. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, they could wasteland your land. You could float and then put their wasteland into play on your on your side of the board. This is just silly. <laughs> I, these are these are cute and, and and quite ironic, but they're not they're not realistic. Yeah, I, I'm I'm gonna go with zero run this in this card. All right, I'm with you. I think that it's possible you could build a thespian stage deck that had access to this card. It might only be as a one of for intuition piles or something like that, but yeah, I, I don't think it's gonna go anywhere. It's a boost to the thespian stage, dark dark stage uh-huh. deck. <laughs> All right, Steve, that does it for Commander. We'll see in a couple of months how we did. But next up, we have our Eternal Weekend preview. <laughs> for 
for our Eternal Weekend preview, we're going to focus, as you might expect, on the metagame itself. The Northeast metagame is relatively well established, with many tenants and players and archetypes and specific lists even that are uh, stalwarts. And there's lots of recent results for the past two months that I think point to the kind of things you would expect to see in the Northeast, since those players and decks will be overrepresented in the Eternal Weekend. Unfortunately, though, having said all of that, the results for top eights and top fours for the last several weeks have been very diverse, just decidedly diverse yeah. from five color stacks to humans to affinity and Esper control to some new exciting keeper lists yeah. and just everything under the, the sun. The most, the most recent tournament report is, I believe, the Top Deck Games tournament, which is run by the same people who will be running the Eternal Weekend, it, right? By Top Deck Games, absolutely. And it might be the most useful tournament report and results for this analysis as well you should, you should do a metagame breakdown but the, the metagame breakdown looks as basically as diverse as a legacy format. it really does it's just smattering of everything they had 38 players and the only archetype that had more than a couple was espresso stacks at five and then bug fish had three and metalworker mud and jace vault had three but after that it's all two ofs and one ofs now, there's a lot of yeah. tactical overlaps the with these decks, of course, but the simple fact the is, is there, are, there are lots of diversity here. Yeah, and the winner was the deck, the key- Keeper, by Tom, the Tom Dixon's deck, and, um, and it really is a throwback. I mean, it looks very you know, structurally similar to the deck, the Keeper. It really is. <laughs> lots of one-ofs, lots of tactical answers to individual types of threats, lots of flexibility, and yet this has a little bit more power than the old Keeper decks did. It does have access to Key Vault, and Jace, and a few other things that are a little above the power level of the original Keeper list. Still, that having been said, you're right. This deck looks a lot like Keeper of old. But Keeper isn't the definition of the metagame up in the Northeast by a long shot. There is a heavy component of workshops, as you might imagine. There's a heavy component of blue-based control. It has some of the best workshop and landstill players in the format. There's a heavy component of new and interesting decks too, like the Blue Angels deck that came out a couple months ago and is still putting up occasional top eights. And then a little bit of everything else, from Humans to Doomsday, Burning Tendrils, Rug Delver, Welder Strix, Bomberman, Affinity, which you better watch out for, and Pyromancer. There, Steve, it seems pretty clear that this event is going to reward preparation and knowledge of the format like no other. What do you mean? When by you that? sit down against a player you don't know, which will be most of us in round one, players we don't know or opponents we don't know, decks we don't know, and they play out a certain combination of cards in the first turn, it's going to reward preparation and knowledge of the format very heavily as to what those cards tell you about your opponent's deck. What they might be definitely. Some, it could also be very misleading. Well, th- that is a danger. Don't get me wrong, but. Simple things like what fetch land did they play? If they play a Misty Rainforest and fetch out a Volcanic Island, what does that tell you as opposed to if they played a Polluted Delta and fetched that same Volk? Ooh, that's very See what I mean? People play fetch lands for the the wrong reasons sometimes. They do, but more often than not, they're not playing it for the wrong reason. There are some decks that allow you the flexibility of playing whatever fetch land. Certain Grixis builds, for example, can play Flooded Strand just as easily as they can Delta, Tarn, or Misty Rainforest. But other decks, say Rug Delver, have a very keen reliance on something like Scalding Tarn and Misty Rainforest to fetch out basics 
And a deck like Landstill is almost inevitably going to be playing Scalding Tarn as its fetch land. So if you see Misty Rainforest into Volcanic Island, that should narrow your options, at least a little. And then if yeah. your opponent plays Mox Jet in addition to that Volcanic Island, well, then your window of options just got much, much smaller because that's not Rug Delver and that's not Landstill. And the number of decks that that could be just got significantly smaller. But it's still not a certainty. It's that kind of preparation and understanding about the format that will be heavily rewarded in a, what is expected to be a large and diverse metagame. So I think we both expect a lot of blue decks. Naturally. Uh, and, and a huge diversity of them. Or maybe a little bit of Grixis, a little bit of Esper, a little bit of, of, of Angels, Blue Angels, a little bit of... Keeper um, and Bomberman. Yeah, Keeper and Bomberman and Bomberman. Um, and and some Gush decks, some Grow-like decks with Pyromancer. Um, I think we expect some Dredge. Dredge is second place in this most recent top eight. And we expect workshops to be represented, although I don't know how strong they'll be represented. I, I suspect they... I would suspect they're probably going to be maybe closer to 10% than 15%. Maybe in that 10 to 15% range, though. They don't seem like super strong. At the As moment. a proportion of top eight, the data supports that assertion. Workshops this year are a lower percentage of top eight appearances than they were at this time the last few years. But they're like reds. You have to be completely prepared mm-hmm. for them. <laughs> you must respect them. Yeah. And then there are the various agro control decks, which at least one or two of will almost certainly be in the top eight at this event. Looking at humans, maybe merfolk, as we have alluded to, if you want to stretch the definition, then Affinity and Rug Delver is a, is a consistent performer in the format. And as we've alluded in our analysis of Toxic Deluge, how you answer those various aggro control decks is very diverse and tricky. Yeah. Well, I w- I'm going to ask you, do you see any patterns in these results, Kevin? Wow, patterns of late. Boy, the short answer is I see a overrepresentation in my experience of aggro control. There are more creature decks than ever, at least than of the last few years in the format. Every one of these top eights in the Northeast recently has some representation of humans or blue angels or rug delver, pyromancer, if you want to call that an aggro deck, certain builds are, affinity and bug. I mean, every one of these lists has two to three creature-based decks like that. You have to be yeah. prepared for creatures in Vintage now in a way that you could have skated on a little bit in past years. It's so weird, and I can't explain it, but what I'm... You know, sometimes you, you can see what's epiphenomenal, even though you can't see the structure underneath it. And sometimes you can, like, sense... So you can see, what you know, the, the salient features of something, of a system without sort of seeing the mechanics of the system itself. I think what I'm observing is there's this trend towards... As odd as it is sort of towards agro control. I don't mean agro control in like a traditional sense of like, of, of, you know, like, like fish or, or whatever, but I mean like decks that are control decks that have a deluge of creatures or a large <laughs> tax component of creatures like Bomberman, Rug, you know, and I see, I think Rug Delver though is closer to that archetypal agro control deck. I, I think those decks are, that's where the format is trending. And I can't, I'm not sure, I, I keep wanting to tie it to Pyromancer, but like Grow being sort of like, I, I think there's been this sort of severe reaction to Pyromancer in different ways. And one of the ways the format 
Pyromancer react is to become more aggressive. So it's like if Pyromancer generates this tempo on the ground, then the answer to it is to win before the Pyromancer tokens do. Um, and, and so I, I actually think that I think decks like Bug and Rug are going to be very well positioned in this tournament. I think they're going to be do very well. I think you're going to see a lot of Rug decks at five and two or or six and two and um, humans as well. Yeah, I don't know how well humans will do in the in the long run, but I think that seems to be where the format is is going. I, that really matches your observation. Um, and, and I don't know. I think I think it's decks that can play multiple roles have always done really well in this tournament. I mean, what was it last year? Was when was the right? I'm sorry. Say again. Last year was Mark Lenikra's victory. It, right? it was. He is still the vintage champ. <laughs> yeah, he, it seems like it's been a long time. It has it's been a year and a half. Uh, um, and that top eight had two Bomberman decks, Bomberman decks in the top, the top eight. Um, I would not be surprised to see decks like that do pretty well again, you know, of that ilk. Mm-hmm. They have a large, um, so I, I think like Blue Angels, <laughs> you know, I've got a gauntlet right now that has in it, um, Nick Detweiler's stacks, a Blue Angels, Josh Pachutek's Landstill, um, I've got the Mark Lenegro's Grixis control deck from Gen Con. Um, I've got a Rug Delver deck from the, one of the recent LCVs. I have all those decks built, and I've been testing against all of them. I've got my Doomsday deck together. I've got an, a nice Oath deck together. Um, and, you know, it's uh, it's like it, 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 this format, <laughs> Vintage right now, seems more more like Legacy in terms of its, I want to be careful how to say this, in sort of its system dynamics right now than, than I, I can ever remember. In the sense that you seem to have like a huge array of options. You have a lot of tactical diversity and a lot of tactical similarities. Um, and these metagame breakdowns look a lot like that as well. Um, you know, it used to be the case that you, you had like four archetypes in Vintage. It's not like that right now. You've got a, just a, a plethora of options. And there are workshops. There are more like deck constellations than archetypes now. Yeah. Yeah. There are these constellations around the traditional pillars of aggro, control, and combo. Yep. yep. But then for every one of those, there are at least five to ten <laughs> legitimate builds of various yeah. decks. Yeah, in, in fact, I, I we forgot to mention this in the in the um, announcements, but I wrote a free article for Eternal Central that's sort of like a preview of the Vintage Championships, and I think I have like maybe four or five categories in there, like workshops, dredge, um, control, like you know combo control, and then slow control, and then combo. Mm-hmm. Probably ten decks. So it's it, yeah, I mean, I think you're exactly right. There's basically something for everyone right now. Um, there really is. And, and when you break down the various forms of, of control decks, from Welder, Welder Strix all the way to Landstill, just just so many different options. And there's all these gradations. I mean, you for your article and the way you just described it, you described it between combo control and slow control. But there's every gradation between those available to yeah. you. If you, yeah. if you want to be slightly faster, you can put Key Vault in your control deck. But if you want to yep. slow down, you can have Key Vault but no Blightsteel Colossus. Yes. If you want to be even slower, you take out the key vault and just maybe put. You in, take out the light steel and you just yeah. yeah you, you maybe you put in Stoneforge Mystic. The keeper deck, the top deck games uh, winner has Tinker, but no Blightsteel. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it has Deathrite Shaman, so it can play the long game yeah. with a deck like Landstill, based on the, the yeah. grindy strength of a card like that. What it, yeah, and what what does well, I think, is going to have to be a deck that can play multiple roles. That's not sort of that, that can shift depending from matchup to matchup. I think that's going to be rewarded. I think that's going to be the ceiling for Rug Delver, which which can be very good and aggressive, but probably can't play a control role very well. But Bomberman can maybe shift into an aggro role, to a control role, and then even a, sees a combo role. Yeah. 
I don't. I could be entirely wrong. I mean, some of these con- really grindy control decks can only play control, and they do they do pretty well. But I think given the diversity of the format, and and, and again, Keeper has always done well in a, in a very diverse format, right? That's that's been its thing. Mm-hmm. What would you give then as advice to aspiring vintage champions as they prepare in this metagame? You described your gauntlet and your free yeah. article, for example. Yeah. How would you operationalize preparing? It's almost impossible to prepare a gauntlet. So what you have to do is you have to understand the tactics that matter. And you have to understand how those tactics matter in the strategic context. So you, I think the most important thing for a player is to play, um, to practice, understand your deck very well and understand how and when to shift roles with your deck. I think that is paramount. Um, and th- that's overlooked a lot because magic theory sort of looks at role in a very, um, in a, in a, in a binary, bifurcated perspective you're either playing the control role in this match or the aggro role in this match and that's wrong that that comes from mike flores is who's the beatdown the reason it's wrong is because it's not what role do you play in the match it's what role should you play in the moment not just within the you can shift roles within the match and you can shift roles within a game i think there's going to be a call to know when to shift roles and so you have to have a sense of first when you shift roles in certain matches and secondly I think you need to understand some of the key sort of extreme, you know, uh, boundaries or limits of the format. So if you're playing, I think even though I don't expect Landstill to be hugely represented, it's a good deck to test against so you understand some of the key tactics in the format. So you can see how you do against a bunch of lightning bolts or engineer explosives or, um, you know, a really high density of counter magic. Similarly, it's good to test against Grixis Control so you can see just how weak you are to Tinker and Time Vault, Key Vault, right? Mm-hmm. It's good to test against. You should frankly know how you do against dredge. It's necessary to test. It's necessary to test against workshops to see not because you, you need a particular workshop matchup, but so you see what are your weaknesses. Do you get screwed by wasteland? Are you screwed by tangle wire? How do you deal with you know cards like? Do you have a sufficient density of answers to turn one lodestone golem? Yes, that's a great that's a great example of what I mean by sort of the limits of the format. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I've been testing around a, a lot of things, um, and I don't know if there's anything you want to share, Kevin, just in terms of things that you thought are interesting, interesting, but one, one thing that I have noticed is Craig Fenton has done very well with Oath over time, and the Top Deck Games, uh, has Greg Fenton, and I think he got, I don't remember, I don't think he made Top 8 at the NYSE Open, but I think he got ninth place, or was very close, and, um, and one particular thing that I've been experimenting with is read the bones in Oath, and it has been actually very effective. Um, in June, Greg Fenton had had top aided a tournament in Boston. Actually, he won a tournament in Boston with Knight's Whisper Oath. Um, it actually it was in Westmont, not not boston he had four knights whispers in gristle brand control oath and he also top aided this this um, most recent tournament with oath with gristle brand oath and i've been testing with a fascinating oath list i think is pretty well positioned with read the bones swan song and i think it would it would benefit from the new uh, commander card in the sideboard and i mix, i have a mix of gristle brand and roots guard demon just because i found that, that the format is so aggressive you, you the gristle brand is not always the best and you you can't sometimes even activate it because if you're at 13 life and you oath up Gristlebrand, you're functionally dead to Bolt plus Snapcaster Mage as soon as you activate it. So um, and that's one of those key I, I, interactions that that you learn of testing is what the, the as you said the boundaries of the format are. 
Yeah, exactly. Um, I think yeah, Bolt and Snapcaster is really big, and um, and and Read the Bones is really really strong in this Oath deck because it's like I just saw another Oath deck that had top aided recently with Four Impulse, <laughs> and it's it's like a mix of Impulse and um, Nice Whisper, and it functions a little bit like Thirst. So if you go, you know, I don't know, Mana Crypt, see Read the Bones. There are times where I'll see something like Gristlebrand and Force of Will, or something, or Gristlebrand and Oath. Or Forbidden Orchard and in Memory's Journey, or whatever the you know the Day's Blessing effect is. Mm-hmm. And the the problem with just a random draw spell in Oath has always been, first of all, you don't want to draw your Oath creatures because the worst place they can be is in your hand, followed by the graveyard. You want them in your library. And the other thing is that it's Oath has always had a problem of what draw spells it can use. You may remember way back in the day, our, our mean deck Oath deck that we put half the top eight at the Star City Games Richmond used Intuition AK. In the very next tournament we used that we played Oath, we played with Thirst. Um, but this this time, I mean, you think you look at the format, you look at the major draw spells in the format, you look at Standstill. You can't use that note. Can't use that note because you can't. You have to play your own oath into Standstill. Gush. Gush has been used with oaths, but it's very awkward because you play with four Forbidden Orchards, which do not count as islands. <laughs> Dark Confidant. Probably, you know, the next most respected draw spell in the format. You can't use that without. Um, Read the Bones is like this perfect mixture of impulse in that it digs very deeply to get to the oath and card advantage. Um, and I think it's been dramatically underestimated in the format because it's not an instant. And also because I think Thirst for Knowledge is one of those cards that's like, it's like the most broken card that people completely underestimate in the history of the format. <laughs> it was, it's a card that seems so innocuous to so many and still today. And yet it, it just dominated the format. Um, and being a three casting cost draw spell, you know, Read the Bones is actually quite good in Oath. So um, that deck, it just seems like that kind of deck I just sketched out has a lot of new cards that are really good. And like we talked about, Swan Song is really good with Oath. But there are a lot of a lot of um, potential for decks like that in, in the, the Vintage Championship. For, that is for new decks that um, can sort of surprise people. I think your advice is very well formed. I've been taking some of that advice already in my testing in that I have picked up some decks that don't see a lot of play here in the Midwest, at least my part of it, like Landstill. I've played that deck myself in a couple tournaments lately, mostly to gain the experience of what it's like, its strengths and weaknesses, to test those boundaries. Also to see what my opponents did that was effective against me, what I couldn't answer, that kind of thing. Yeah. And But for those who don't have access to a regular vintage metagame or aren't playing once a month, your advice about having a gauntlet, but you can't possibly build everything, so have a gauntlet that's representative, but then study some of the other decks and look at the key interactions. Look at the key yeah. cards that you will face out of those decks that are different from what you're prepping against, so yeah. that you won't at least won't be surprised when you see that combination of lands or permanents come out early in the game and think, oh no, I didn't, I didn't test against this, but it's not the worst because I know they play with this, I know they play with that typically, and so here's how I adjust. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and, and if people are coming from Legacy, I think, you know, picking up Bug or Rug, you can't really go wrong. Oh, good point. Very good <laughs> advice. There will be a number of players, and I don't know how many of them are listening to our show, but regular Legacy players that are at this event on this particular weekend, as a matter of course, and they're staying through to Sunday because their friends are vintage players or their ride doesn't leave till the next day or what have you just for the fun of it. 
it is very realistic to play one of the decks you just mentioned or a handful of others that are modeled very much like legacy decks and your experience will translate it's one of the things we've mentioned and i'm a big fan of this and i think it's only going to continue is vintage looks more like legacy than it ever has in the history of the formats and your experience is more applicable across the two formats than it ever has been also yeah so by all um, means pick up rug delver pick up bug fish pick up esper control and go to town i don't think players should be beholden to what they see in top eights either if they see changes that make sense they should they should make them um sometimes vintage players are a little bit stubborn or uh stick to convention or tradition um you know I asked Greg Fenton over Facebook whether you have to play, and I posed the same question in the manner, where you have to play Gristlebrand and Oath. And I thought Jayco's answer was very fascinating, which he says you, you split Runescar Demon and Gristlebrand. And when, I, when I've been testing my Oath deck with Read the Bones and Swansong, the fascinating thing is every time I activate it, I, want, I sort of think to myself, which card do I wish I hit right here? Right. Runescar Demon and Gristlebrand. And the fascinating thing is I actually prefer Runescar Demon. <laughs> certain comfort uh, in, the, in the certainty of the demon? Yeah, and in and often my life is low. Mm, so good point. Uh, yeah, you know, Steve, we've just rattled off a couple, maybe a dozen decks in the last few minutes. But to your point about being beholden to what's out there, several of those decks were not a thing even a few months ago. Humans is relatively new on the scene. Affinity relatively new on the scene, ported over from classics and grow. Yep, grow. Pyromancer grow is obviously new because of the card but also the grow tactic was not was not a thing in vintage for a, a period of absence yeah people absolutely have to be prepared that's another limit how do you deal with how do you deal with young pyromancer do you have answers to young pyromancer mm-hmm. that card is very popular <laughs> another card that's key and wasn't really a big presence in the format until this summer was abrupt decay and especially with the uptick in bug fish at the bazaar of moxen do you are you prepared to deal with abrupt decay? Yeah. There are answers to it. You can play around it. You can have proactive and reactive answers to it. But the simple fact is, is if your deck is reliant on a certain key permanent, do you fold when your opponent just happens to draw one of their two to four abrupt decays? All these things are key. We've talked the format for many years now, Steve, you and I, and with our audience about key things that have existed for much longer, like the lodestone golems and the dredges of the format and the Tinkers and the Jaces. These things are long-time stand-ins, but the format has lots of staples and common effects now that haven't been around for quite as long. Your your Vendillion Click and Restoration Angel, your Trinket Mage into Engineered Explosives, your your Cavern Souls. And you graph them into a long 20-year history of the format, (laughs) but... But yeah, I mean, but these are these are new tactics, um, and people people should be familiar with them, if not experienced against them. Um, and 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 I, I again, I, I recommend people go read the look at the lists in my Vintage Championship preview article on Eternal Central. But um, it's really important to do some testing and understand what some of those tactics are. Yeah, if you're not a player that has several hours a day or even a week to dedicate to building a gauntlet. Steve has done a lot of the work for you. Your testing and your gauntlet will be successful if you only use the lists in that format or that article. And if you're a workshop player, one thing you might want to be testing is how do you deal against Ancient Grudge? You know, because people, that's increasingly popular right now. Oh, yes. If you play workshops at this event, you will almost certainly face Ancient Grudge in half or more of your matches. (laughs) Okay, that might be overstating it. You'll probably, in eight rounds, if it was eight rounds, maybe nine rounds, you'll play workshops twice. You'll probably Grixis once. 
and then a mixture of other decks. Okay, maybe not half, but you you should be prepared to face it in as many as half of your matches. Let's put it that way. Because if you if you plan to win this event with workshops, you're going to have to beat at least somebody and probably several somebodies with Ancient Grudge. Yeah, it's in everything. It's in <laughs> the Keeper, Rug, Landstill, mm-hmm. in Growth. Yeah, um, and decks that don't use it, it's probably because they're playing white and they've got, I don't know what they're using. Uh, <laughs> they're using Disenchant, Swords to Plowshares, maybe even Serenity, mm-hmm. maybe Devout Witness. Um, but there's a yeah, and there seems to be like you said a lot of abrupt decay around right now. Um, but this is gonna this is gonna be a really fascinating tournament. Uh, I think a lot of I, I think the the main trend I'm seeing is is towards Vendillion Click. Now I'm looking actually at the, that top eight from the top deck uh, the top deck games, mm-hmm. and there are one two three four five. There there's six Vendillion Clicks in that top eight. Yeah. Which may not seem like a lot, but that's 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 in like four decks clicks. So. Um, I, I expect to see a lot of click. I think click is really powerful in this metagame. It's good against Jace. It's good against these sort of aggressive things. It flies over the Pyromancer tokens. Um, it's the tempo card. I think, I think that's where the format is headed right now. You know, that that top deck game's top eight really is emblematic of the whole format. Let's just run through the, the decks, the archetypes. Keeper, yeah. Keeper. I don't want to list all the, the cards, but Keeper, Dredge, Rug Delver, Bomberman, Oath, Espresso, Stacks, Merfolk, and Bugfish. Yeah. Now, creatures are heavily represented there, perhaps a little more than the, the metagame as a whole, but it speaks to what we're talking about. Creatures are common, and there are multiple different creature decks. There are, there are full-on five different creature decks in that top eight, depending on where you draw counting, the line. Are we counting the Keeper deck with three, with six creatures? <laughs> I'm, I'm not, but it all depends on where you draw the line. And I think the yeah. over-under is at Bomberman. God, how good is Toxic Sludge against the, this top Toxic eight? Deluge, I think. Yes. Yeah. You're right. And that's why I'm so excited about it is because it gives a deck that can cast it a real answer to multiple archetypes. I think Toxic Del. I think all the cards that we listed today are going to have an impact in one way or another. You can, I mean, you can Toxic Deluge Gristlebread. <laughs> <laughs> I think that I wouldn't be surprised if the top eight Vintage Champs features three different cards that we've reviewed today. Yeah. Different cards, meaning. I don't mean three appearances of Toxic Deluge. I mean three different cards from this Commander product could be in this top eight. Oh, and the Commander. Yeah. Steve, what do you think about that? What do you think about the release of this product so close, now that you've seen the product itself? I think that may be a little bit a little bit premature. I think there may be some availability issues with some of these cards. Mm-hmm. But I, I certainly wouldn't rule it out. I think these these cards are going to see play, but it, it, I'm it's I'm just not sure where. I think there's going to be a lot of uncertainty from people about sort of what they want to play and where the metagame's going. Uh, and the Vintage Championships always has a consolidating effect on the metagame. So I think if there's a clear place for one of these cards in the post Vintage Champs metagame, it will definitely see play. Uh, I see your point. So if the top, yeah, if the top eight has like a lot of of these aggro control decks in them, I, I think Toxic Deluge is especially if there's humans. Because Toxic Deluge seems like it's just tailor made for crushing humans. Um, when I first put two and two together and realized that this product release was so close to this weekend, I was very upset because I was picturing a fluster storm, something like that that goes into several archetypes and is a, is a two or three of in many of those decks and by today's standards. Having seen the product now, I'm a little less concerned. I believe that if a player wants to play with, with one or two Toxic Deluge, they're going to be able to get them with the help of their friends. I don't think there's a card that's a four of in any particular deck here, and if it's a four of in any one deck, it's not in any other deck. 
So while availability is a concern, and I don't like the proximity of the release to this event, I think if players want to play with a couple of these commander cards, they're going to be able to get them. Yeah, I I hope so as well. Although we'll see, where can people pick up the commander cards? Well, I don't know how effectively the distribution is going to be, but these are a big box product. The previous commander product was sold at Walmart and Target and Meijer and other such places. <laughs> Our listeners might not know about Meijer; it's a Midwest thing. But the uh, <laughs> the thing is, it's a big box product. It should be available at Walmart. And for those of you who are coming from far and wide to this event, if you need these cards. Maybe if you're driving, maybe you stop at a couple of Walmarts along the way. It might be just as simple as that. Alternately, you can make arrangements with your local LGS. I'm sure someone there would help you get the two or three ofs you need 48 hours in advance or 24 hours in advance for the unfortunate legacy folks. So I I believe there is a concern, but I don't think it's quite as bad as I maybe thought. I really hope this doesn't become any sort of pattern, of course. But I think the scheduling for Eternal Weekend this year compared to this Commander product is probably a one-time situation. Steve, this is the last time most of our listeners would hear our voice prior to arriving at this weekend. What are your arrival plans? When are you going to be on site? So I made a decision that I was going to fly Thursday. That way I, I'm not flying in Friday and trying to orient myself. Um, I'm going to bring a stack of, of reading materials for the flight and a swimsuit for the pool. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm flying in um, Thursday, and I'm planning to play in Grinders on Friday and Grinders on Saturday. Um, and I'll be playing in the Vintage Championship on Sunday. So definitely stop by and catch me. And I'll, if you see Kevin, there's a good chance I'm not too far away. <laughs> and I'll probably be able to point you to him, yeah. Well, I'm coming in on Friday, only taking that particular day off of work this time. And I expect to play, I expect to come in late Friday night and then play a grinder or two on Saturday in preparation for the event. So I think it's going to be a great weekend. I think it's going to be a great environment. And I look forward to any and all listeners who would like to say hello and shake our hands to, to introduce themselves to us. And also due to the nature of the vintage community, if you're not already friends with half the community, you could very much be at the end of this weekend. So if you see any other name from top eights or anything that you know and they you want to ask where other players are that you've heard their names of, I bet you won't have to go more than one or two players to find someone who knows who you're thinking of. <laughs> the community yeah, is quite tight-knit. If you haven't pre-reg for the tournament, I think there may be some, some Tarmogoyf playmats still available. Um, and if you haven't, if you're not um, able to get one of those Tarmogoyf playmats by pre-reg, I think the first 400 people who pre-reg for both events will get will get a Tarmogoyf playmat. You can still win one by winning the Vintage Champs Bingo, which is on the Mana Drain. And I'll <laughs> put a link to that in our podcast. Nice. Yes, good reminder for our listeners about the pre-reg, too. If you didn't know about that, you can go to their site and pre-reg. Now, by the time you listen to this, don't know how much time will be left in that or how many slots. That is for the playmat, but you can always pre-reg, even if they've exceeded the giveaway for that one. Steve, I'm very excited. It's not long now. We're in the home stretch. Yes, you can feel it now. It's going to be great. Um, Rich Shea is going to be there. It's going to be just a, a, a hell of a lot of fun. And and what a what a you know what a night to podcast this with the announcement of Vintage on Magic Online, which is just going to transform the for, the future of the format. Oh man, our podcast where it's going to have to get a lot more complex, taking into account the modern online metagame. We're both looking forward to it. 
I think our question of the week should be pretty clear, Steve. What deck do you expect to win the Vintage Champs in 2013? So let us know what you think. As always, you can respond on Manadrain, Colonel Central, or Twitter. Or send us an email at so many insane plays podcast at gmail.com. And until next time, we wish you many insane plays. Not safe for the game! <laughs> <laughs>